This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense. This is Hill Vaden, and I am here today with Reed Olmsted and Houston and Prescott Roach in Denver uh, to talk about uh, the, the, the shale sector and some of the, the recent activities and a recent paper that Prescott has done on uh, those firms coming out of bankruptcy um, in, the, in the prior year. So, so, so welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Hey guys, thank y'all. Uh, th- thank y'all for being here. So, so, so this th- this paper caught my uh, attention, Prescott. That we, we try on Energy Sense to cover topics that, that sit on the uh, on the intersection of energy and financial markets, and obviously a topic about um, bankruptcy filings within the energy sector um, would be of particular interest, but, but I guess before we get into to some of the, 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 these details, so, so I mentioned Prescott is joining us for, from Denver. This is the first time I think Prescott and I have spoken since really the pandemic when it, previously yeah. we were the first ones in the office almost every morning. Indeed, uh, indeed. How things change. Yeah. So, so, so what, are you still early to, to the office? Are you earlier to the office now that your commute has been removed and now that you're in Denver? So when I first moved up here, I had uh, big plans to uh, head back into the office uh, as soon as it opened up. But uh, here we are, I think probably seven months after I uh, made the move up here, and I still have not even seen the inside of the office. Um, <laughs> so hoping, uh, you know, with a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel uh, in terms of pandemic, uh, things going to start to open up here uh, next few months and will likely be uh, heading in then. But as of right now, my office is my uh, my kitchen counter. All right. And, and so, if you, how about yourself? I, I've only been in once or twice, uh, and, and uh, obviously our floor is now gone. Um, so, so I think within the past, what we we, we were all on a floor that, that has been kind of downsized, and, and so our stomping grounds are uh, are no more. I haven't been back since it's been shrunk. Have you, Reed? Yeah, I've been going in a couple times. Um, it's good to go back in, and some people are coming back, and. There's sort of a sense of normalcy uh, to go back and uh, have some conversations. That honestly is what I've missed the most. And I've really started to be intentional about, you know, you can check the boxes and get work done when you're not in the office. But you you can really have these great cerebral conversations about things you that aren't like in your typical workflow when you're just around smart people. So the other day I was in the office and wound up having an hour long conversation about uh, should we tax carbon or should be cap and trade, things like that, which right now is not material to my my typical responsibilities. But it was great to do that. Having conversations with other people um, about like asset quality of renewables. And these are co- not conversations that you have when you're not in the office because you got to set up a phone call to have that, which really kind of takes the takes the spontaneity out of it. But um, it's been good to go back in. You know, we're getting we're getting a few people on the floor, and it's good to go in and, and have a different environment. Yeah. Well, Prescott, have you found, I'm curious, I, I have, there are several friends and colleagues from, from Houston that, 
you know, pulled up stake and went to Colorado with, with the, the ability to work remote? Have you found like a little Houston within Colorado for, for social reasons? Are there, are you finding dozens of people that you used to see walking around the streets of Houston? <laughs> so, uh, I actually went to school, uh, in Boulder, um, uh, many years ago. And, uh, so having been, having lived in Houston for eight years, um, it was really unbelievable coming back, just seeing how much had changed uh, in Denver. I mean, it's just grown so much yeah. uh, in, in the time I've been gone. And it seems like almost anybody you talk to here is not originally from here. So, yeah, <laughs> to that end, there are certainly a lot of uh, Texas uh, expats uh, here. And you definitely don't have to look far. Yeah, it seems like whenever you go skiing or anything, you are more likely to run run into someone you know from Houston than you would be if you were still in Houston. So, yeah, it's, it's been very strange uh, in that regard. You know, Prescott, the third most popular license plate in Colorado is Colorado license plates. First is, Tex- <laughs> exactly. First is Texas, second is California, third is Colorado. All exactly. three of them on Subaru Outbacks, right? Exactly. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so, so we can get, get into the uh, topic, uh, but before I do, so, so I reading this week uh, Matthew McConaughey's uh, new. I guess I guess it's an autobiography. It's kind of a book of life lessons that, that he calls green lights, in reference to sometimes life gives you green lights that allow you to go faster. Sometimes life gives you red lights that allow you to slow down. Um, and I was reading it last night and there's a story in there uh, about, um, when, when he was in high school, Matthew McConaughey, and he was not surprisingly, um, the big man on campus. And he said he had a girlfriend at his school and at the school across town had this great either Nissan or Datsun truck or something, um, where he would, you know, take people out mudding and he was, you know, just everybody thought he was great right and then one day he got into he, he found a, a red sports car some small sports car and he traded in his pickup truck immediately for the sports car thought he was so cool would hang out you know at the deep end of the parking lot where the other doors wouldn't hit his car because he didn't want his you know red paint to scratch um and then after a while he noticed that the girls weren't coming up to him anymore he, he wasn't quite as cool as he was so so he traded in the red car for the truck that he had previously traded in, like within the, the, the first month of ownership. Um, and, and it struck me, you know, that there's, we might find that the shale sector in a bit of a similar situation right now where the, the shale sector for, for years was grow, 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 grow. And now all of a sudden that they're, they're, they've been asked to be more prudent uh, around that growth. Um, prices are stabilizing. Um, are, can these companies change or or are they going to be trading in their red cars, uh, for the pickup trucks that everyone used to love, uh, to, 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 to give you the example. So, so, so where are we right now in the shale sector and is the newfound price support just going to result in cash? Um, or, you know, do, do, do we see, um, a, a real change in behavior and maybe we can start with you, Prescott, having, you know, maybe tied to, to the, the, the paper that you recently published and read if you'll weigh in as well. Yeah, absolutely. So and this is such an interesting question because I mean, you have what going on almost 10 years of data to show that no, many companies, uh, 
uh, are not likely to embrace um, capital discipline and are likely to spend beyond cash flow. But I think there is reason to think uh, this time's different. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that so much of this is out of uh, companies' control when it comes to accessing capital markets. The, the simple reality is capital markets have pretty much closed off to, uh, to upstream players, uh, which has forced them to live within cash flow. And so even if there were wherewithal on their part to spend beyond cash flow, investors simply aren't allowing it right now. So to that end, I think that there's a really strong case to be made that uh, capital discipline is is set to continue even with higher prices. Now, that said, though, we've seen a pretty strong recovery in, in prices over the last few months. So we'd still expect us to see a pretty big ramp up uh, in capital spending levels. But in terms of a return to uh, the olden days when uh, companies were routinely spending beyond those cash flows, I just don't know how possible uh, that is given that capital markets are shut off to so many of these companies. What do you think, yeah. Dave? Yeah, Prescott, you, so, so you're right. So one, you, I think well, you touched on the, they're going to, they're going to stop cutting down trees. The next question is, are they going to start planting trees, right? They're going to stop doing bad behavior. Will they start doing good behavior? And so one of the things that we've been looking at, you know, yeah, the capital markets are closed and you mentioned oil's back up. I just checked. It's about 64 bucks right now which is where it was last January, like January of 2020. But we're still down 300 rigs compared to where we were back then. So not only are they not continuing to borrow and outspend, they're actually right now, from what I can tell, <laughs> what, we're, what we're seeing in the data, they are intentionally underspending. And I think, you know, as, as you know, the, the line always goes, and you mentioned it, yeah, this time will be different. Um, I think I think there's good reason to believe it is. And part of that is just due to the, the pressure. There's, you know, consolidation. There's, you know, the, the energy transition that was a heavy theme at Sarah Week last week. But also it's it's the um, management of base decline. So, it, it, you know, if you stop spending and give money back to shareholders, production would collapse. And that was bad because of covenants with banks. It, which is too much the mechanics of, of how the, sh the industry worked. But basically, these guys couldn't let their production drop years ago. So they had to continue borrowing money or else they'd breach covenants. And so now we're in a position where that where, you know, they're they've come out of that that vicious loop. And so they can start making their own decisions, absent externalities of, of you know, banks. Now they have to deal with the externality of investors, but it was in the past they had the banks on their backs, and so they were they were kind of hamstrung with that. But I do think this will be different. We're seeing a real maturation of the business, and we we saw that with every asset type through the last hundred years, right? It's grow, 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 and then stabilize. And I think that we finally turned the corner into that stabilization here. So with even with the, the influx of cash, you know, I'll come back to, to the truck car example, right, that, that he traded the car back in because he wasn't getting the attention he wanted. And, and, and you know, that the truck helped, you know, to, to get that attention. One can, in theory, grow and have cash come in right now that the impetus still did you still need to go to financial markets to grow um, or have thing and your base decline is somewhat flattened, right? Yeah, so we've seen the base decline really flatten. I don't think they need to go to financial markets, um, and I say that partly because they can't. Um, but you know, we're looking at 
25 to 30% underspend of CapEx this year or capital this year, meaning we're thinking they're going to give back like $30 billion, which would kind of be the first time that happens. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's the growing up of the business. And we've seen consolidation. Part of that's due to an inventory issue. These guys are, you know, they're not going out and trying to find new plays. Part of it's due to bankruptcy considerations, right? Part of it's due to, you know, just getting scale uh, in the sector. So we're seeing consolidation. And when you get that too, you get more, or you get less volatility. So all of that is pushing this towards towards maturity. They don't have the ability to go and, and get more money, but I don't think they need to right now either. The world demand, global demand isn't isn't prompting those prices that justify huge growth plans. Growth plans and Prescott, you, you would agree, and, I, and it sounds like that some of the bankruptcy analysis you did is kind of influencing the environment that, that we're in now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think Reed mentioned a really good point, which is the maturation of the industry, kind of uh, alleviating some of the need to go out and raise capital simply by virtue of these companies having a really large production base uh, that they can turn to that makes it uh, easier to either hold production flat or even deliver modest growth with less capex than would have been required, say, you know, five years ago when they had relatively nothing uh, in the way uh, of base production. So to that end, I mean, yeah, the maturity of the industry certainly helped uh, in terms of capital discipline. In, in terms of the maturation of the business, we've seen a really big change in sort of the structure of companies' economics. I mean, the companies that have filed for bankruptcy in the last year or so have a very different asset portfolios than those of 2015, 2016, and in, in years past. You generally see companies today uh, have much lower break-evens. And so just from that standpoint alone, you would expect greater odds of survivability. Based and on what, that. what were some of the similarities w within those companies that, that did fall for bankruptcy? And I think you grouped them into that there was a too, too early to tell on to kind of a, a survivor bias and then the, those companies that were going to come out stronger and those companies where you know maybe they weren't going to come out at all what was there um an asset similarity between those who are going to emerge more strongly than others yeah absolutely so we looked at about 50 uh companies that had filed for bankruptcy uh in this study and these are companies that uh, made filings between 2015 and 2020 and so to your point hill we group those companies into three sort of tranches. For companies that declared bankruptcy between 2015 and 2018, we were able to see, you know, what ultimately became of them. So we're able to group those companies into, into either companies that survived, that is, they went through bankruptcy, they came out on the other side of it, and then ultimately they were able to return to growth. And then we lumped the rest of those companies that did not survive based on whether they liquidated or whether they, you know, they may have survived, but they just kind of entered zombie mode. Production mm -hmm. continued to decline. They had very low levels of spending and activity. So we had those two groups for companies that went through bankruptcy in the past. That third tranche that I, that I mentioned are your more recent companies. And that group we, we called the too soon to tell group. So these, these are companies that made filings within the past year or so. So kind of work building off of that, we wanted to get a sense of that third group's survivability odds. That is uh, the odds that these too soon to tell companies will be able to, to come out on the other side of this and, uh, and emerge as stronger, leaner companies. So we looked at a couple of things to kind of make this assessment. The first was uh, asset break-evens. 
So when we look at the wellhead economics of a lot of the operators that filed for bankruptcy over the last year or so, we see that most of them break even at oil prices of $50 or less, which is referenced uh, in the report. Mm -hmm. This is really different from the past downturn when you had a lot of operators that filed for bankruptcy with break-evens in the $60, $70, or even $80 range. And so history tells us that companies that break even at or below about that $50 threshold have a relatively strong chance of staging a turnaround following bankruptcy, while those that didn't just didn't. And so, what, I'm sorry, go ahead. Are, are these low breaking of your areas in all plays, or are there some, did, did you notice exposure to certain plays um, that, you know, that there were clusters of bankruptcies? Or are there some plays that are just right. not going to work? It's a great question. So, yeah, I mean, based on the, the need for relatively low break-evens to survive, we know that geology really matters. Um, but to your point, geography really matters, too. Most of the companies that have the lowest break-evens tend to be concentrated in your headline place. So that is firms in the Permian, the Bakken, and the Eagleford. And what's really interesting, though, is you have a disproportionate number of companies with much higher break-evens, that is those above, say, $50 a barrel, that tend to be concentrated uh, in mid-continent plays. And we see that not only among recent bankruptcy filings, having high break-evens located in mid-continent plays, but also among those, uh, those historical cases. So companies that filed for bankruptcy in 2015, 16, 17, and 18 that did not survive and had really high break-evens, a lot of those were located in those mid-continent plays, whereas we see those lower-cost plays like the Permian, Bakken, and Eagle for giving a distinct advantage for a company's survivability chances. And so what do we expect from those companies in the, and those plays uh, this year? So it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Um, when we look at historical examples of bankruptcy, even for companies that did survive, come out on the other side and turn things around, you never really see a rapid return to production growth or a rapid return to um, you know huge capex budgets. Um, even for survivors, it often takes you know a year, maybe two years, for them to start reversing those production declines and begin growing um, once again. And even even then, you rarely see companies ever go back to their previous all-time record high mm -hmm. production levels. So I think going forward, history is a pretty good indicator of what we can expect. The fact that then on top of that, you layer in all of this newfound emphasis on capital discipline and the fact that capital markets are pretty much shut off for a lot of these companies. I think that we can really expect going forward that even though a lot of these companies that may have recently filed for bankruptcy will survive, you're really not likely to see them return to growth anytime soon. Um, it seems like a much more likely scenario is likely to be sort of maintenance uh, production levels. And one 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 point I want to make here is you say growth, but I think when you say growth, Prescott, you mean production growth, which if we right. go back to the conversation a few minutes ago, that's not necessarily what investors are pursuing. Cash flow growth, that's the new red sports car, right? Um, so are they going to, while they may not grow production, I wonder if you could, uh, may, I don't know if this was part of your, your, your look, but is the do they emerge out of that more constrained in cap in capex spend with a larger focus on cash flow right as opposed to production oh, growth i think definitely which makes them no exception to just the the broader industry uh, at large and you know maybe one data point supporting that is uh this 
huge emphasis among companies that uh, that have recently gone through bankruptcy uh, on on lowering their their operating cost structures. So there's really been, I guess, an industry wide shift toward trying to get your lease operating expenses down as low as you possibly can. And you know, this is no exception with uh, companies that have have recently filed. Um, I think anything in the name of trying to maximize uh, returns and ultimately ultimately getting in the good graces of investors once again is is going to be a huge priority uh, for a lot of these companies. You, you, the, the, the paper identifies a handful of bankruptcies within the mid-continent place. Um, if the assets aren't going to support growth, what will those assets support maintenance? So with a lot of the companies that, uh, that did file for bankruptcy uh, in the mid-continent, as I mentioned earlier, uh, a lot just did not survive in the past. Um, they either liquidated or uh, in more often than not, they were uh, acquired by other companies. There are uh, several examples where we can look at distressed operators that were acquired by, uh, by stronger competitors. And maintenance production really seemed to be the, the most optimistic case. Uh, in some cases, following two, two companies uh, merging, we continue to see production declining over time. And the priority really being on attaining cash flow and uh, minimizing your operating cost structure. So even holding production flat isn't necessarily possible uh, in mm-hmm. all cases, and it's certainly not not what we've seen. So I think uh, just mitigating the decline and generating as much cash as possible seems to be the priority uh, in those plays. Do we expect any? I mean, it, M&A, there were, there's a handful of mergers and acquisitions toward the end of last year, um, very, very small handful. And some consolidation of some, you know, small players coming together to, to be a bigger player. Do we expect more of that this year? And what happens to the mid-continent player within that world? Is anybody going to want to bolt any of that together, um, or does that section get ignored as people focus on opportunities? And and I think the the Permian or Eagleford. You know, from my standpoint, we did see some really meaningful acquisitions at the end of last year. Those opportunities. Have largely been captured and realized. There, I mean, certainly, there will be some uh, this year. And and as the energy transition continues to accelerate, those those will also accelerate. You know, investors don't need thirty Permian stocks to pick from. They need like seven. Mm-hmm. But back to your question about the midcon, it's going to be a tough sale for business units to their management or to their boards. It simply isn't as attractive as most most other opportunities. Now you've got a couple of large operators in midcon, but they've got optionality in their portfolio, and so you're competing against capital. The smaller players perhaps will continue to try to try to work it and turn it over into something big. You know, sort of the the uh, HGTV flipper mentality. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna buy a piece of junk and and you know put a fresh coat of paint on it and flip it. And there are still a lot of companies that are trying to do that. As far as meaningful deployments of capital, I don't think that MidCon is going to be that attractive. But Prescott's actually writing a report on it right now. So what, oh, what yeah. are you seeing in the data? Yeah, definitely. I mean, to your point, Reed, mid-continent, mid-continent is obviously very depressed in terms of uh, spending levels uh, and activity levels. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the fact that companies with portfolio optionality are going to show a preference for highest return plays like the Permian, the Bach, and the Eagleford means that the mid-continent's likely to kind of get picked over. And so any consolidation in that space, I would have to venture a guess and say that it is going to be among uh, mid-continent specialists. And so you might see the rise of 
sort of mid-continent pure players uh, in there, but I wouldn't expect a large diversified EMP like uh, EOG or, or Pioneer to, to be going into the mid-continent anytime soon. Just in terms of overall uh, activity and spending levels uh, in the mid-continent, uh, it certainly seems to be right now a theme of uh, maintenance production or minimizing declines, trying to make it a, a cash flow generating play as opposed to a, a growth play. So, Reed, you mentioned that we don't need 30 growth players in the Permian a- anymore, and some of those, you know, this is, some of that has changed. You know, I, I guess within the past week or two, Exxon had its analyst day and announced pretty aggressive growth targets for the Permian, and I think uh, Chevron did as well um, in terms of growth targets. If we can expect prudency from the small caps uh, or the mid caps and uh, the, the majors are growing, what, what does that mean for the sector? So, so two things that you'll probably notice, those two companies you mentioned only talked about growth in the Permian. They didn't talk about growth anywhere else in the lower 48. Also, and, and my apologies, I haven't gone back and done the full digest to know how that offsets any other production declines globally in their portfolio, right? So just because mm-hmm. just because one asset's growing doesn't mean the entire production base is growing. I'll put it this way, as one of my colleagues said, that's in like 2023 or 2024. A lot can change between now and then. But I did note that those guys haven't been punished. You know, there's Chevron came out with it this week and their stock price has held up. So look, I think there's an opportunity for growth. The issue is uh, it's got to be prudent. Like you said, it's got to be moderated. But we don't need my my point was we don't need 30 options to choose from in a stock. How do you differentiate yourself in that field? No analyst is going to go into the detail of seeing how much you know company A is paying for water hauling versus company B and say, ah, oh, I want company A now because they're better at that. So I think we're going to see a lot more consolidation. We've already started to see it. I think it's going to continue. I think, what was it? 20 years ago, there were something like uh, 20 offshore deep water players. And I think now there are seven. The industry mm-hmm. just doesn't need that many. You, you get experts, you get guys with scale, capital efficiency, supply chain management. And we're starting to see the, the unconventional business turn into that type of environment with large pads and, and things like that. So it's the companies that aren't just good at rock, but that are good at um, – good at logistics that we're going to start to see emerge as the true winners. Now, whether that, it, how that affects the pace of consolidation uh, is yet to be seen, but I think those are the things that are really going to play into it. The rock is set. People know the rock. People know what the production is. Now it's how do you manage the above ground and who's going to be better at that that really emerges as, as you know, the, the victor here. So uh, I guess uh, another thing, you know, you mentioned kind of looking back 20 years ago, if we look back, you know, 10, 11 years ago, gas shale, what was still popular um, and, and around, you know, the discovery of the Eagleford, you know, people's and I guess more of a maturation of the Bakken, people started to focus their companies on exposure to oil um, slash liquids. I think Prescott, several of the, you know, am I correct that your paper was focused on oil operators or was that just a result of the data that it was the oil focused uh, operators that, that were? Yeah, it was predominantly focused around oil operators solely for the basis of being able to have kind of an apples to apples comparison when it came to you know, production levels, changes in production levels and uh, lease operating expenses and all that. But yeah, you're, you're right. It is mostly liquids. So, so do we expect any more interest? You know, the, the, the big thing globally for, for our 
kind of energy sector is, is lower carbon, and obviously gas is lower uh, car- carbon than oil. Do do we see any appetite from some of the uh, you know the, the the rush to liquids to to, to start moving back into low cost gas um, as kind of a you know a, a next wave of activity here? Based on M and A activity over the last few years, I mean. I would have to guess and say no, uh, given that there's been these continued efforts to uh, shed gas-weighted assets. That said, obviously the lowest sources of gas supply in the U.S. are in either Appalachia or uh, in the Haynesville. And so any activity would almost certainly be concentrated there in terms of gas rather than uh, your higher-cost mid-continent place, even though some of those may be relatively gassy. Do you agree? Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, these these oil operators have, are kind of emerging on the backside of who moved my cheese, right? Like they were grow, grow, grow. And then in a span of 18 months, they were told cash flow. Now, God help them if investors start saying, OK, you've cored up and you, now you're giving me cash flow. And oh, hey, go find more gas. So I think that it's, it would be it'd be tough for them to swallow. Now, one of the things that we're talking about internally, particularly after Sarah week, I'll say a couple of things here. One is we talk about clean energy, carbon capture, all that, like you mentioned, Hill. Most of those plans are 2030 is the first date for some sort of goalpost and 2050 for the late date. And um, you go talk to a U.S. operator and they're looking 12 months into the future. Right. So it's a little different horizon there. The, the other thing goes back to what I just said, which is how are you going to have an investor say, grow, 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 18 months after they accomplish that in 18 months, say, give me cash flow, takes a couple of years to do that. And now they say, go invest in green energy, carbon capture, all that. Like, hey, I'm getting my cash flow. Right now, operators have the, do I drill or do I give it back to investors? You put you put another objective in there of clean energy or, you know, alternatives, carbon capture. That's a That's a third option for that dollar. And that's a dollar that the investors have been clamoring for for years. So I don't know that. I'm not going to say that it's not on the radar. I don't think that that the clean energy is as, as high a priority for um, for the U.S. independence as it is for you know some of the NOCs and the global operators. And when you say clean energy, you're talking about gas in this situation. I'm talking about gas or any anything other than than crude that they've been pushed to go after since what 2013. I mean, it's been eight years that investors have pushed towards crude uh, to now switch that, you know, when we finally got a very efficient, the most efficient crude producing system in, in the world to then try and go and add friction to that with, you know, alternative production or, or something is, is not going to go over well. It, it almost seems as though uh, most U.S. Uh, independents <clears throat> may be focusing on ESG targets, reducing uh carbon emissions in their processing, uh, reducing flaring volumes, things like that. But so far, that doesn't really seem to extend into their production portfolios. Companies that were uh, liquids-weighted last year continue to be liquids-weighted this year. And it doesn't seem like, so far anyway, that there's really been a meaningful shift uh, uh, away from that and toward, toward gas, say. If investors, want, if investors want gas, they'll go buy gas. They'll go buy gas-producing stocks. Right. So that's that's kind of how they'll build a synthetic portfolio of companies or, you know, a synthetic production base. Instead of telling Pioneer, go buy something in, in Appalachia, they'll just go buy Cabot. Mm-hmm. So what and maybe this is a good place to leave it. But 
it, it sounds like you know that, that there's we, we continue to anticipate prudency for, for, from the sector. Um, you know the, the the bankruptcy efforts of or the reorganization efforts of the past couple of years have put these companies on a stronger footing from a debt basis and in many cases from an asset basis. Um, so, so in a way, there's a wall of cash uh, coming into the sector. If they're not going to grow, what are they going to do with the cash? I mean, there's, I guess, a lot of red sports cars out there, but it, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> not for CEOs anymore. But it, it's like anything, right? You've got to invest in it to get it big, to get it to grow. And then when it's there, it, it becomes just a cash generation vehicle. And, and I remember I've been in this business for over a decade. And listening to all these naysayers say, oh, the, the best way to lose a dollar is to give it to a U.S. operator um, <laughs> because they'll lose two for you. Um, <laughs> but now, I mean, look, it was that way. Any Anything you try to prove up and definitely grow at the pace that U.S. supply did, that U.S. production did, it's going to take a while to, to pay it back. But we're finally cresting that hill. And now you're right. We do have this wall of cash coming to us. Now, it's very, some would argue it's overdue. Some would argue it's not enough. But the point is, it's going to be a lot of cash. They're finally, you know, putting on their big boy pants and, and you know, living like adults. All right. Well, it will be, uh, you know, I guess we can sit and watch from here. Thank you guys both for, uh, for, for, for joining, uh, joining me today on this. Uh, we'll mention, you know, just one other thing that, you know, we're just talking about attention and, and quote unquote buzz. I, I saw a new ETF that, that was released called Buzz, B-U-Z-Z, um, that includes it, it's some way of tracking these companies that are most talked about, you know, on the back of some of the retailer phenomenon. And so I think Penn National and a few of these other, you know, Tesla, some of these big names, a single upstream company. It is captured in the Buzz ETF. Do you <laughs> care to guess which it is? Uh, it's catching names that that is uh, that is catching headlines. That's trendy, turning up to be captured by however they do this ETF. Uh, You're out of time, Exxon. Chevron. Oh, Exxon. I was going to say Exxon. Exxon. Okay. Uh. Uh, I was surprised. I, I went into it looking for one of the you know shell companies that maybe is catching more publicity, but I it, well, Exxon was a single company. Exxon is doing a really wow. good job promoting their promoting alternatives, promoting green, promoting all that. That could be why. Maybe it's not because of the legacy EMP, but because of the uh, the spin or the message they're sending about the next decade. Maybe so. They're, I guess their uh, their PR group is hard at work. The others were, I mean, it had, you know, all the names, you know, it's multi-sector. It was kind of an interesting thing to look at, but the names that you know from Seeking Alpha and all these other pages. Dillard's, right? Dillard's was in there? <laughs> I, I don't recall if GameStop was in there. <laughs> I was going to ask if GameStop was on there. <laughs> I don't remember. I think there's some sort of criterion in there that, that uh, I think limits, uh, you, you can't just talk about anybody, but, but I'm not sure exactly the details. So some 30 30 day rolling average of volatility i'm sure would would knock gamestop out <laughs> <laughs> all right well thank you both and uh reed it was a pleasure as having you back as always and prescott it was great to, to see you again and have you on the uh, podcast you as well us. all right hey thanks, thanks for to read additional insights from our team of experts visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com energy blog 
You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.